Welcome to the Voices in Bioethics podcast. I'm Jennifer Cohen, and it's my great pleasure to welcome journalist and author Lydia Denworth to the podcast. Lydia, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's great to be here, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Lydia, you are a science journalist and contributing editor for Scientific American. You write the Brainwaves blog for Psychology Today. Your work has appeared in The Atlantic, Newsweek, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Time, and many others. You're the author of three books, all of which I hope to discuss with you today. Toxic Truth about the dangers of lead poisoning, I Can Hear You Whisper about deafness, and most recently, Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary power of life's fundamental bond published by ww norton in 2020 friendship has met with rave reviews and was selected as a 2020 nautilus gold book award winner congratulations on receiving such a prestigious award thank you so much i'd like to jump right into your fascinating book on friendship and social relations which it's so timely as we deal with the aftermath of now nearly a year and a half of social distancing So the intro to your book is entitled A New Science. Friendship is traditionally thought of as a social experience, but your book is making a very persuasive argument that there are ways that friendship can be analyzed scientifically and that this science of friendship, as it were, can contribute important insights. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Sure. You know, we've known for really thousands of years that friendship is pleasurable. Aristotle and Socrates discussed it, you know, so it's not that friendship is new in the least, of course. What is new is that we understand that friendship is not just cultural. And that is frankly what we thought for a very, very long time, that it was this kind of lovely byproduct of human civilization and language. And of course, there are cultural layers to friendship, lots of them. But it turns out that there's really also a biology to friendship and an evolutionary story here. And that's what I sort of came to understand as, I mean, as a science journalist, my job is to go out and talk to scientists, listen to them, listen as they speak amongst themselves and see what they think is interesting and what's important. And I began to notice that there was a lot more talk about friendship and talking about it in these different ways, talking about the biology and evolution of it. And that seemed to me to be new, and it is. It's really only in the last 20 years that people have approached studying friendship in this way. And that's what the book is all about. Your book begins on the island of Cayo Santiago off of Puerto Rico and a team of scientists studying rhesus macaques. How can the study of social relationships in primates help us understand human friendship? Yes, well, I started the book there in part just to show you sort of this is not your parents' book about friendship. (laughs) This is a whole new way of looking at this subject. But the thing that is interesting is that some of the real groundbreaking work has happened in other species. So that's another reason why I started there. So it was when we began to understand that there was friendship or something like it in other species, we realized that there was a deeper story here, that there was something more fundamental to friendship and to the ways that we have of connecting. And so rhesus macaques in particular, and well, uh, non-human primates, so monkeys and apes, are 
especially useful because their social behavior is really the most like ours and their brains are quite similar to ours as well. And so we can kind of strip down some of the complex variables of human life and get to the core questions of how individuals interact. And this is not to say that human beings are exactly like monkeys or that a monkey friendship is the same thing as my relationship with my best friend, but there's plenty that it has to teach us about how and why friendship developed the way it does And I find it just fascinating. Plus, it's fun (laughs) to uh, watch the monkeys and think about how they're similar or different from us. So your book is looking at the work done in understanding social relationships in non-human primates, as you've just discussed. You also explain a lot of the theories put forth by Richard Dawkins and others that there is this genetic basis for maximizing friendships, that that can give an evolutionary advantage. Can you discuss this field of evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, and how that is informing our understanding of human friendships? Yes. So basically, either way, evolutionary biology is about looking at how natural selection has shaped our biology. And then evolutionary psychology is looking at how evolution has shaped our minds and our behavior. The behavior sort of crosses over. I mean, everybody's looking at behavior, but trying to understand what are the biological bases of behavior. And what is its adaptive value? Why would we engage? Why have friends? What are friends really for um, is one way of of asking this. And, and I think everybody knows, they think about evolution in terms of, you know, the size of the beaks of the finches on the Galapagos, the finches that Darwin recognized as being important and used as the basis for his thinking in the origin of the species. And so the beaks change size according to what food was available and things like that. But thinking about evolutionary pressures and or the pressures of natural selection on your instinct to be friendly or not is a kind of another leap <laughs> to get to looking at it with behavior. But we know from this work in other species that that is exactly what friendship is, that there are real evolutionary advantages to being good at making and maintaining friends. And we know that from research in the macaques, and also it really began with research in baboons in Africa. And the short version of the story there is that there were primatologists watching these troops of baboons over many, many years, and they were recording everything that the baboons did, just like the researchers do with the macaques in Puerto Rico, in Cayo Santiago. And they kind of watch who does what to whom, and they keep track of what it gets them, I guess, over the course of time. And at the same time that sociologists and epidemiologists were noticing in humans that maybe it seemed like there was a link between how socially integrated you were, how social you were, and how long you lived, they were noticing in these monkeys that there seemed to be an instinct to be friends. And so it actually (laughs) allowed me to uh, digress a little. There was a baboon named Sylvia in Botswana, and she kind of triggered this. Sylvia was very high up in the hierarchy of these baboons, And so baboons and macaques are very hierarchical. And the researchers who were watching them always kind of thought that dominance must be the most important 
factor in their sort of success in life. But this Sylvia was very high up, but she was also rather nasty. She really treated just about everybody (laughs) terribly. And she mostly hung out with her daughter, Sierra, who was her primary grooming partner. But then Sierra was killed by a lion which is sadly something that happens sometimes to baboons who live in Africa. And Sylvia did something interesting. Everyone kind of expected her to go off and be sulky and and, uh, grieve on her own because that had been her MO for her whole life. But she didn't. She started trying to make friends, to make overtures to the other baboons. There's a grunt that baboons use that sort of signals that they come in peace. And it was surprising to the primatologists who were watching. Presumably it was surprising to the other baboons as well, (laughs) who were used to her being such a nasty piece of work. And it got the scientists thinking. And what they did was they took their years of data on these baboons, and they were able to calculate a number that essentially was how often the baboons were nice to each other. And then they compared that to their reproductive success is what they started with. But ultimately, reproductive success, which is how many babies you have or how healthy those babies are, how long they live, and then how long you live, your longevity. And what they found was that the baboons with the strongest social bonds lived longest and had more and healthier babies. So longevity and reproductive success are as good as you can get in evolutionary terms. And so it made clear that there has been essentially a survival of the friendliest among these baboons. And so that is where this evolutionary idea comes in. And once they discovered that, that was just reported in 2003, the initial findings, and then it's been built on since then, that is where we began to say, okay, there is something far more fundamental going on here. And maybe the stuff that's going on in humans is not just as straightforward as we thought. They thought maybe it was a concept called social support that was explained why someone who was more socially integrated would live longer. And that makes sense because most fundamentally you would say that you have someone to drive you to the hospital if you need to go somebody to notice that you need to go to the hospital. And that's true. That makes a difference. People who live alone are at higher risk of dying earlier. But baboons also live longer if they have good friends and baboons can't drive each other to the hospital. So that is how we know that there is something much more fundamental going on in friendship. And that's what's so fascinating to me. So interesting. Yeah. In your introduction, you say that it's time to bring friendship to the foreground because it's a matter of life and death. And it's a striking statement, but the research that you bring forward, as you just described, really makes that argument. I, I think I'm glad you, I'm glad you agree. <laughs> so your book is a wonderful chapter. If we could just drill down into this, mm-hmm. into the sort of physical benefits aspect of friendship. Your book has a wonderful chapter entitled Middle School is About Lunch. Mm -hmm. And you look at the phenomenon of social buffering and the protective positive effect that peers have on not only our mental health, which as you say, had been recognized for for millennia, but our Mm -hmm. physical health. Can you drill down a little on the effects of friendship on physical health? Sure. So everything I just described about the fact that having more friends helps you live longer, the flip side 
is also true, that being lonely or socially isolated is bad for you. And a lot of this work that's happened in the last 20 years has been to try to pinpoint why exactly. And it's a pretty startling list. So if you consider friendship at one end and loneliness at the other as two ends of a continuum, right, that basically measures how socially integrated you are, those things, friendship and loneliness, affect either for good or for ill your cardiovascular functioning, your heart rate, blood pressure, all of that, your immune system, how resilient or susceptible you are to inflammation and viruses. Yes, viruses in this time of COVID. Your stress responses, how well you sleep, your mental health, so your risk of depression and other things like that, your cognitive health, your risk of dementia, and even the rate at which your cells age. So there's a little cap on your DNA called a telomere, and it gets shorter faster in people who are lonelier. So they are actually biologically older than someone who is more socially integrated. So in addition to friendship having real evolutionary advantages, it has real here and now health advantages. And so I will go so far as to say, yes, friendship is as important for your health over the long haul as diet and exercise. And almost none of us treat it that way. And we should. Incredible. So loneliness should be looked at as a public health crisis, you're arguing. Yes. So it's important to define some terms here. So loneliness is the subjective feeling that there's a mismatch between the amount of social connection you want and the amount you have. And social isolation, which is what so many people have been forced to live with during the pandemic, is the more objective measure of your size of your social network and the number of social interactions you have. Both are dangerous, but loneliness really seems to be especially bad for us. It's that because it's it's how we feel. I mean, it's possible to feel lonely in a crowd, right? So it gets at that need to really feel a sustaining connection with other people. That's not the only, I mean, there are benefits to more casual relationships too. We can talk about that, but if we have to pick, (laughs) if you're going to ask me, you know, how many friends do I have to have? The answer is really one. The biggest step change is between zero and one friends in terms of your health and loneliness. Yes, it is a public health crisis. What it does to our body Well, so I mentioned the immune system earlier. I'll just explain that a little bit more. So there, what we know is that, I won't get too technical here, but your genes are your sort of blueprint for how you might be in the world. But then whether or not genes are turned on or off has a lot to do, whether they're expressed is the scientific term. You have a scientific audience, right? Um, We do. (laughs) Whether the genes are expressed or not has a lot to do with, with your environment, the environment that you grow up in, that you live in. So this whole idea of genes times environment, right, is what we know now of epigenetics. That's a quite a new, relatively new field, but fascinating. And it changes how we think about genes. But so what happens in the body when you are lonely is that the cells in your immune system, so especially the white blood cells, the leukocytes, the genes in them are expressed differently when you are lonely and when you are not. And those genes, that gene expression, that difference in gene expression is the difference between that susceptibility versus resilience to inflammation and viruses and things like that. And, you know, it's like, why would your white blood cells care about that? And what's happened is they identified this 
response. It has a very technical name, which is actually escaping me at the moment. It's CTRA, which I think it stands for conserved transcriptional response to adversity, but I could have that wrong, but (laughs) maybe we'll go back and double check. But it turns out so that that's what your body is doing when it is lonely. And then it turns out that your body does this same kind of response in the immune system to other really big things like trauma and poverty and living through a war. And most of us would never have put loneliness on the same scale as those other things. And I think what this science is telling us is, yes, this rises to the level of a major traumatic experience if it's sustained. But the other thing I want to say about loneliness is that we also understand a little loneliness, like a little stress, can be good for you in that it is a biological warning signal. It's your body telling you that you need to connect. And in fact, deep in the brain, This was theorized quite some time ago. In fact, between the time that my book came out and now, it went from theory to having some evidence. There's the first pictures of the brain. Deep inside the brain, they can show now that loneliness looks an awful lot like hunger pangs. There's a real similarity to how your midbrain, deeper parts of the brain are responding to hunger and to loneliness. And I think we can think of it in the same way. It's telling us, it's warning us, get out there and connect. Your body needs some connection. Now, once loneliness becomes sustained and chronic, that's where it starts to do harm to the body. That is incredible. I really like that framing of loneliness, which is more positive as a nudge to get out and be more social. Wow. I was just going to ask about neuroscience and my next question and what that has helped us understand about friendship. You outline a number of critical elements to friendships in the book. Time spent with another person, one of your experts even gives a number of at least 50 hours, proximity, face-to-face and physical contact. One of the experts you cite identifies the two most important elements to a friendship as laughter and disclosure. But the other crucial aspect of friendship you highlight is this feeling of empathy. Mm. And there's a wonderful quote from Edith Wharton you have in the book about a friend being not a separate person, but an expansion and interpretation of oneself. And the answer you just gave about gene expression being so dependent on social relationships informs that quote for me even more. (laughs) How has neuroscience helped this field of evolutionary biology progress if they're connected? Or is neuroscience a separate way of understanding friendships that's giving us insights into the way the brain works? As you were just describing, loneliness triggering the same neuro response as hunger, that type of thing. Yeah, no, I think neuroscience is proving really critical. In fact, that's how I first got interested. It was at a social neuroscience conference and the whole field of social neuroscience is relatively new as well. And it is all about how much of the brain is designed to connect to other people. The analogy I use in the book is that there's been a lot of attention. A lot of what neuroscience has been focused on is trying to map the connections in the brain. That's what the big brain initiative that Obama put so much money into is all about. But you can also think of neuroscience, of social neuroscientists anyway, as trying to map the connections out of our brains and our bodies and to other people and showing how much of a difference that makes. And just as one 
example of the way neuroscience, or actually I'll give you a couple. In this last year, when we were all stuck at home and spending so much time on Zoom and things like that, which most people hadn't used before, neuroscience can tell us something about the difference in the response in your brain to watching someone on a screen versus interacting with them in person. So eye contact when you are face-to-face in person operates a little differently in your brain or activates your brain a little bit differently. It primes the communication parts of your brain to get ready to connect. And Zoom does some of that, but it's not all the same. And Zoom also, another thing that neuroscience does is really show us how sensory or the sensory nature of friendship, so much of it is about what you take in with your eyes and your ears and your sense of touch and smell. And I mean, we don't think about smell very much as humans and when we think about how we interact with other people, but it all factors in. All of that sensory information is being processed by your brain. And I mean, it's why babies, when from the minute they're born, they're predisposed to focus on faces. Why would that be if it didn't get them something, if it wasn't useful, (laughs) right? I mean, why would a face stand out for a baby among anything else? And yet it seems to. They fixate on faces and things that look like faces. And then they get better at that almost instantly. Like you can tell the difference between a baby born one week and then the next week in terms of how fine-tuned their social sort of visual and auditory skills are. And then across those first couple years of life, there's a trajectory that neuroscientists can identify of how babies are getting better and better and better at the sort of social elements of neural processing. And another thing that neuroscience does that is just super cool. I talk about it at the end of the book because it's really the cutting edge is that they're now trying to look at different people's brains while they're interacting together. Or, I mean, that's hard to do, but we're beginning to be able to do it just for technological reasons. It's hard to do. But these same neuroscientists did this very cool thing where they used social network analysis to map out how connected a bunch of students. So they were all students in a graduate program at a university and they were able to say, you know, okay, Joe is friends with Jim and friends with Sally, but doesn't really know Kate. And then they put people in the scanner and they showed them video clips and they were able to see that the way your brain processed different kinds of video clips, it's kind of like a neural fingerprint, but also that there was similarity in friends. So you could predict just by looking at how similar the brain processing was, who was friends with who and who wasn't because they processed it differently. So it literally means that you are seeing and hearing the world more like your friends and less like the people you're not friends with. I don't know if that made sense, but I think it's fascinating. Yeah, oh, <laughs> incredible. <laughs> so your book ends with a reminder that for friendships to work positively, they require a lot of attention, a lot of work. Your recent article in Salon addressed the subject of ending friendships. Yes. When is it healthier for people to do that? And under what circumstances should people end friendships? Yes, this is one thing I wish I had put in the book because it comes up so much. (laughs) So clearly this is on people's minds. I am in the camp that believes that it's okay to end friendships more than people think. So, and what I mean by that is that 
first of all, there's more churn over the course of our lives than we sometimes imagine. And as an example of that, I have a statistic in there about sixth grade. You mentioned that there's a chapter, middle school is about lunch. Well, that's really about what's happening in childhood and adolescence, in the brain and behaviorally, and how kids are learning to be social. But one of the my favorite statistics, or I think most telling, is that sixth graders, two-thirds of sixth graders change friends between September and June of the sixth grade year, when you're usually about 11. Now, part of what that is, is in the U.S., a lot of sixth graders are coming from an elementary school where they were in one classroom and then going to a middle school where they're starting to move, you know, they're in a different environment. So some of it is environmental and context. But think about all the sixth graders, you know, who are in the middle of the pangs of and the pain and the sort of excitement of all of that social turmoil. They think they're the only ones going through it. And in fact, two thirds of sixth graders are changing friends. And it's sort of a natural process that's happening because they're meeting new people. They're also starting to coalesce their own interests and things like that. I think that kind of change in friendship is a little bit, if you imagine that same sort of September to June of sixth grade year as one long trajectory through your entire adult life, I think you probably are changing your friends (laughs) in similar ways. Now, that said, what really, really matters is that you have good quality friendships in the core of your life, sort of your inner circle. You need people that you can really count on. And friendship, the science of friendship actually gives us a kind of handy definition of friendship. That is, it's a relationship that is long lasting and stable, that it's positive, so it makes you feel good, and it's cooperative. There's a reciprocity and a helpfulness to it. Those three things are necessary to consider something a good friendship. And if we take those three, we can say that we need to sort of look at our relationships and see whether they're hitting all of those things. And they don't all. So sometimes we have relationships with people we have a long shared history with, but we find it very draining to be with them. Or other friendships are very lopsided. One person does all the talking and the other does all the listening. And it never, ever evens out. And those are the kinds of relationships that you want to look at and say, is this the best use of my time? Because the truth is we have limited time and friendship does require time. It requires time to make friends and then it requires some time to maintain them. I mean, to get really technical, biologists talk about the energy use that we put into our relationships and that the benefits that we get from it have to outweigh the costs to us. That's a pretty reductionist way of thinking about it. And yet, if you think about it, we use that kind of language when we talk about friendship. When we talk about somebody being draining, it's essentially us saying that it's using up my energy in a way that is depleting, right? So the other really important thing to know is that ambivalent relationships where there's good and bad in how you feel about someone turn out to not be good for your health, according to the research so far. And that's interesting because a lot of us think that the good must outweigh the bad in those relationships where we feel a bunch of different things about someone, but that does not seem to be the case.